Welcome to Builder Funnel Radio. Here you'll learn about how to grow your home building, remodeling, or contracting business. If you're not growing, you're moving backward. So we want you to always be in growth mode. This podcast has really turned into a movement and community of people who want to grow personally and professionally. Here we bring you some of the best marketing, sales, and business minds in the industry so you can elevate your business. All right, let's dive into the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Builder Funnel Radio. This is episode 149 with John Warillo. And we're going to talk about how to make your construction company more valuable. If you don't know John, John is the founder of the Value Builder System, which is a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide. Offered by a global network of independent advisors known as Certified Value Builders, the Value Builder System incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score. And those businesses that achieve a Value Builder Score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011, and has also been translated into 12 languages at this point. John is the host of Built to Sell Radio, which is ranked by Forbes as one of the world's 10 best podcasts for business owners. And in 2015, John wrote another best-selling book called The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. John completes the trilogy with his latest book, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. Prior to founding the Value Builder System, he started and exited four companies, including one acquired by a public company, and he now lives in Toronto with his family. And you can follow John over at builttosell.com. I really enjoyed this as I have read two of the three books that John's written over the years, and they have had a big impact on the business that we're building here over at Builder Funnel. And I think you'll get a lot out of the conversation. I highly recommend you pick up his books. And then we've got a special kind of bonus free package for you. And he provides a link near the end of the show. So stay tuned for episode 149 with John Warillo. Hey, John, glad to have you here today. Yeah, good to be with you, Spencer. Yeah, I'm excited because, well, one, I've, I've read two of your books and uh, and they both had a big impact on me and, and our business that we've been working on over here. But I think they're, the ideas and the concepts are super relevant and applicable to our audience, but maybe not some of the, the reasons, maybe not in the way that we want them to be. But we can kind of dive into that. But I'm curious, what were you doing before you wrote that Built to Sell book? I think that was several years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago at this point. Yeah, well, well, I was actually running a quantitative market research business. So service business, like a lot of your listeners, different industry, but similar in the sense that it was very lumpy. You know, projects would last three months, six months, different customer each time, reinventing myself every month. And eventually I got kind of burnt out. We were five or six million in revenue. We, it was pretty profitable. I mean, 20, 30% profit margins. And we had great clients. Like we had you know, Wells Fargo and Bank of America and all these massive clients. And I said, you know what? I want to sell. And I went to see an M&A guy. So these are the, the professionals who sell companies. And I kind of walked in, you know, thinking I was sitting on this gold mine. I was rubbing my hands together saying, Perry, you know, like, what do you think it's worth? And he's like, well, it depends on the answer to a couple of questions. I'm like, shoot. I like, all right. Well, who does the research? I'm like, well, I'm involved. I mean, we do work with Bank of America. Of course, I've got to be involved in that. And he says, all right, well, who does the selling? I'm like, we're a small company. Of course, they want me to show up, you know, like, you know, he said, all right, so let me get this straight. You, you got a research company, you do this research, you do the selling. 
And I'm like, yeah, I guess you put it that way. And he's like, yeah, there's nothing. I can't sell your company. There's nothing to sell. And I remember rebutting him at the time thinking, but hold on, Perry. Like we've got, you know, more than a million dollars of EBITDA. Like this is a profitable company. This is like, look at all these clients. Did I tell you bank of He's like, none of that matters. If you can't run this company without you, none of that matters. You just have a fancy job. And Oh man, it was like getting kicked in the teeth. I, it was brutal uh, because again, I walked in there thinking someone would want to buy my client list or you know, you know the, the profitability of the company, et cetera. And and Perry quickly disabused me of that. Really, <laughs> kind of taught me that that's not what makes your company sellable or valuable to anybody else other than you. Yep, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I think that happens a lot in in our industry as residential construction companies too, because I think a lot of times those companies just get dissolved or maybe, you know, hopefully they get passed down and that's a way to, you know, transfer that and you do a buyout over time. But to your point, I guess, if the owner is too involved, then you can't sell it. And I guess my, my next question would be, why is that? What's at the crux of that? You know? Yeah, because there's no barrier to entry a construction business, right? Like anybody who's got a credit card can go up, buy some tools, and they're in a construction business. They don't have, they don't have to know what they're doing. <laughs> they don't have to be 20-year veterans like most of your listeners. They can just show up. And as long as there's no barrier to entry, an acquirer will look at this business and say, why would I buy it? Why wouldn't I just compete with them? Why would I actually buy this company when I could just hire that employee, pay them a 20% premium, and basically take everything they've got because they're not doing anything proprietary. So anything unique, again, most acquirers, and again, you, you, listeners may not want to sell their business for decades, but it helps to know what acquirers look for because it can help you sort of build your business over time. Most acquirers, when, when you're not in the room, they're going to have a, a build versus buy decision. And they're not talking about building kitchens or bathrooms. <laughs> what they're talking about is building what you've created or buying your company. And if they reason, they're going to first of all calculate like how long it would take them to basically buy what you've created. So if you're a $2 million kitchen and bathroom renovator, they're going to say, okay, well, they know how long it's going to take them to win that amount of business. If you've got four guys on your staff, they're going to go, okay, I know how to, you know, how that's just going to cost me to attract and train those people. And they're going to offer you a significant discount off that number. And that number is pretty low. And so what generally happens is, you, you know, you, you're not trading construction businesses for more than, you know, one or two years of profitability at most. And so most construction guys go, well, why would I sell if all I can get is one time's profit? I'll just keep the business. Yep. Yet they're in this <laughs> trap that they can never get out of because they haven't built anything that's not dependent on them. And that's the, that's the quintessential challenge of a construction business. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I, I'm sure it doesn't happen often and we don't see it a lot, but but I'm sure there are some guys that manage to pull it off. You know, so if somebody were to want to sell their business, are there a couple of like key pieces, or is it simply just the owner has to remove themselves and they got to set up systems? Or is that like not enough? Cause like you said, somebody can just go build it and say, Yeah, I'll just do that instead. Yeah, I mean the, the first step is to most construction companies and, and most service businesses and most businesses are like a, a mile wide in terms of what they offer and and oftentimes an inch deep. In other words, you know, they go and they say, what do you want done? And you want a deck? Great. You want a new roof? No problem. You want a kitchen? You want a bathroom? You want a spare bedroom? I can do it all. I understand construction. The problem with that is 
it takes years to develop the same degree of experience that you have. And therefore, you can't hire employees. As long as you can't hire employees, all you've got is you and a couple of helpers. And so that doesn't translate into a business you could transfer. What you need to do is, is pick one thing. In other words, go from selling lots of things to a few people to doing exactly the opposite. So figuring out doing one thing better than anybody else, and then you can go scale and hire. So we just had a, a swimming pool installed at our house. And these guys were saltwater pool concrete specialists. Right? Pretty specific. They don't, they don't do vinyl. <laughs> they don't do chlorine. They don't do kidney-shaped pools or pools for golf club. I mean, they're very specific. Residential, concrete, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and so once you do that, you can start getting some repeatability. Some, you can train some staff to do the concrete pools, understand the difference between salt and chlorine and recommend salt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can train them on that, that technique. That's what I'm talking about in terms of, but most, most folks are just like, we're, we're socialized, unfortunately, as entrepreneurs to, to chase revenue, right? The Inc. 5,000 is the 5,000 fastest growing companies, right? And that's like, we, we, like puff our chest out and say, yeah, I'm at a million or I'm at 5 million or I'm at 20 employees. I'm at 50 employees. I mean, like that's how we sort of boast to one another as entrepreneurs, right? The challenge with revenue or top line or size as a proxy is oftentimes it doesn't translate into value. You're just running on a hamster wheel, but you're not actually building value. Value, again, comes from, can someone else do this company without you? And, and the first step, I think, is really narrowing down what you offer. I mean, we had, you know, this, this pool project, there was a guy who just did, we got glass, instead of getting like, you know, wood railings or metal railings, we got glass railings, so it didn't obstruct the view of the pool. Well, there's a guy that just does glass railings, right? And there's an installation process, there's a cutting process, and there's like that's a sellable company because you can hire a bunch of semi-skilled people to install if you teach them how to install the glass railing. But as long as you're doing everything from kitchens to bathrooms to decks, you can't translate that business or transfer that business. Therefore, it's not sellable. So the the big advice I would say is you got to pick one thing. And, and and build your business around something that makes you unique, special, different in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so counterintuitive because you feel like you're giving up revenue, but it's very much that like doctor approach. But it's hamster wheel revenue, right? Yep, like it's just treadmill <laughs> revenue. It's not you're not building anything of value. You're just chasing. You said before we hit record, you know, guys will do two million in ba- kitchens and bathrooms, and they'll get to the end of the month and they'll go, "How am I possibly going to recreate what I did this month next month?" Because I got to go find new customers. I got to get like it's just it's exhausting, right? Because you're always starting every month from zero. And, and that's, that's what I think some people just reach an their end of the rope and they're like, okay, I'm willing to have a smaller company if at least I can feel like I'm building something of transferable value. I don't mind taking a zero off my revenue if I feel like over time it's going to be a valuable transferable company. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome advice, and it's interesting because we we did that as an agency at the beginning. We kind of we came out of a direct mail background, and so we were just kind of like an incubator within that company, and we were just going after anybody and everybody. And then we realized, like, hey, we've got family in this industry. They were kind of our case study, and then as soon as we started saying no 
to everything else other than it was like everything got easier. It was, but not just from a marketing and sales standpoint, operations, efficiency, training staff, like all those things. It creates an amazing domino effect. I'm so glad you brought that up because people are afraid of, of, oh, I don't want to turn down that client or, oh, I, you know, what are they going to think of me if I say no to that job? I'll never get asked again. If I, that referral who referred me in that great old client who said, hey, you should talk to Bob. If, if I turn his client or his happy customer or his buddy down, what's that going to be? Here's what it does. If you say you're the world's best saltwater concrete swimming pool installation company, you get a reputation. You get a, 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 a halo effect from that. You get referability. If you think about the last time you referred somebody, my guess is it wasn't a generalist. It wasn't a general accountant or a general home builder. It was like the guy or gal that has some really obscure niche where you're like, oh, you want to install glass railings around your pool? Okay, there's one company that does that. And that's the kind of referability you get when you do one thing. And yeah, it takes a lot of courage and discipline because there are huge forces, societal, as well as just chasing, you know, making payroll that, that force you to want to take all jobs, but it's a, it's a, it's a treadmill to nowhere in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say it was scary when we started turning that down. Cause you're like, mm. eh, it's right in front of you. You know, how can you? And so we kind of took that leap of faith in your experience. I know you've helped, you know, thousands of businesses work on building more value into their, their business. Is it just a leap of faith or are there like a couple of things that could, you know, for somebody listening, they're going, okay, like I'm thinking about maybe I'm just going to do, you know, master baths or, you know, something like that. Like, are there a couple of things that kind of give that person a little confidence to make that leap of faith or is yeah. it truly just? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So, so a couple of things, first of all, find your TVR. So teachable, valuable, repeatable. So find a service or some sort of offering uh, that you can teach employees to do that's valuable to customers and is repeatable, has a recurring nature to the revenue. Customers need it on a recurring basis. So swimming pool, like installation, although a specialty is not a great TVR because you only need a swimming pool once every 30 years or probably once in your lifetime. So that's not a great TVR. But if you had a swimming pool company that offered a pool maintenance program where they came in and not only installed, but also took care of and rebalanced the, you know, the salt and so forth, that's the kind of TVR, the R and TVR stands for repeatable. So that would would get you into that sort of zone. So figure out your TVR is the first step of the process. Then productize. Productizing means making your service sound like a product. And that sounds like marketing, jingo, lingo. It is effectively. It's making what you offer today as a service by the hour, by the day, whatever, and making it look like a thing. So naming your service, proprietary steps in the service, making it look tangible like a like a thing, even trademarking the name and the steps in your process. And here's what that does. It makes you the owner of that process as opposed to being a generic builder. When you're a generic builder, people can compare you with five other generic builders, right? And all of a sudden you're raced to the bottom, your commodity. Whereas if you are the specialist in in the one day installation of glass railings as an example, glass, you know, whatever, uh, barriers, whatever, I can't think of the word, then you can name that process and you can create marketing differentiation. And when you have a productized service, you can start charging up front. Because if you think about what your own experience is, like I, I dare say the last time you bought a product, like a physical product, something you could hold in your hand, the mic in front of you, you paid for it. 
they shipped it to you, you installed it, you started using it, right? Whereas if you look back at the guy who made the, the wood frame behind you or the, the accountant who did your books last year, my guess is that they administered the service and then they sent you an invoice. And so service companies have a negative cash flow cycle. And that's one of the reasons people don't have a lot of courage to make the shift because they're living hand to mouth anyways. Whereas if you switch and you become a productized service, a thing that sounds real, all of a sudden you can charge up front, right? Because we're socialized to buy products up front. So if you have the the six-step glass railing installation process, Oh, you want the six-step glass installation process? Great. Well, it's 75% up front and 25% when we install the product. Why? Well, because it's a process that we only own. So we get to dictate the terms. And that gives people courage when they're getting cash up front to start making some of these bold changes. And so I'm a big believer in first productizing and then charging up front a big chunk of what you do rather than you know billing by the hour or by the day and sending an invoice three months later and hoping to get paid. It's just a crappy way to to run a business. So I'm a big believer in productizing and then charging up front. Hey guys, I know that if you listen to Builder Funnel Radio, you are hyper aware of the fact that the way people shop and buy, it's changed dramatically over the years. And for the last 10 years, really since I started doing all this, helping my uncle's remodeling division scale up from about 2 million to 10 million, We've been helping remodelers and builders and contractors all over the country really refine their marketing systems. And I recently decided to kind of bottle all of that up into my first book. And that book is called The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. And you can pick up a copy by going to the website, remodelermarketingblueprint.com. You can also search for it on Amazon or wherever books are sold online. But I highly recommend you go over to the website because we've got some cool book bonuses that go along with that if you pick up a few extra copies for your friends and colleagues or your teammates. So it would mean a lot to me if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or even just a few episodes, if you've ever gotten any value out of it, head over to remodelermarketingblueprint.com and snag your copy today. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Well, and you mentioned something in there on the the repeatable side that ties into your second book, I guess, which was the automatic customer. And I remember reading that and thinking about, you know, our industry and I kept thinking, you know, kitchen and bath guys, whole home remodeling guys, like, man, what if you just had like a home maintenance service that you charge them, you know, monthly or quarterly and you, you come by four times a year and you check all the, you know, light bulbs, smoke detectors, like all just like everything and anything. So somebody's like, I don't have to worry about this stuff. These guys just show up. But I guess for this industry, you don't see that often. You even mentioned it with the the pool cleaning. Like if they had a maintenance program, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why why is recurring so valuable, you know, when you look at just the products versus a recurring customer? Yeah, because when an acquirer acquires place of value on your company, right? And so when an acquirer looks at your company, Effectively, what they're buying is your future stream of profit. And that's something I didn't understand when I went to sell my my company. I didn't really understand what they were buying or what made my company valuable. And again, they're buying your future stream of profit. And if that's relying on you or personally showing up to do the work, then there's no value in your company. Yet, if you have a recurring revenue stream that's not 
incumbent or dependent on you making the sale, then they can see profit into the future and therefore they will value your business more, more highly. I'll give an example. It's in the kind of home maintenance space, but not exactly what your listeners do. It's from the security industry where, mm. you know, security companies, they come and install a security system, right? They wire up the, the windows and the sensors and so forth. They have two forms of revenue. They have installation revenue, which is the one and done akin to building out of kitchen. And they have the monitoring revenue, which is the service contract revenue. You pay them to monitor the system and call the cops if there's a break-in. Typical alarm or security company will get about 75 for cents for every dollar of installation revenue and about $3 for every dollar of recurring revenue. Said another way, your recurring revenue in a security business is worth about four times every dollar of installation revenue. So for anybody in this space, it, it really makes sense to think about, okay, how do I create some sort of service contract tail recurring model that will that will give me that recurring revenue. That makes sense. Yeah. It's basically predictability. They can go, okay, I can already see the revenue happening without anybody doing any more work because they're already customer or you know a little bit of work. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I feel like a lot of people, yeah, we you just think of it, you're kind of just looking one step in front. You're just saying, okay, what how do I land this next project? You know, what does that look like? So, so for, you know, kitchen bath guys, these pool guys, like I'm just, I'm just trying to think about somebody sitting there and they've been kind of doing, doing what they've been doing for 15, 20 years. And they're going, okay, I could see how maybe I could get more narrow or maybe I should explore this recurring. Is it, is it the sort of thing where you recommend somebody start with one is one more valuable or should you should you kind of attack both of those pieces together? Yeah, I mean, the biggest mistake in figuring out your recurring model is to try to create a subscription or recurring service contract for all of your customers. And if you have been in the business for 15 or 20 years, you could look at the variety and the depth of the types of customers you've had. Some guy wants a kitchen, another person wants a bathroom, someone has a 5,000 square foot mansion, another person has a 1,500 square foot condo. Like it's, Everything, every project is different. And, and if you try to create a service plan or contract, I think, to appeal to all of your types of customers, it's a recipe for a diluted, unattractive, unappealing offering. And I think you're going to fail. I think the first step you need to take is to first segment your customers by the reason they buy from you. So really try to understand what it is that makes somebody who gets you in to do a, a kitchen in a condo, in a building, in an urban environment, and what they're, how they're different than the guy or gal who lives in a 5,000-square-foot house out in the country. And really start to think about and segment your customers based on why they buy from you, what triggered them to call you in the first place. And what I think you might find is going through that process, you identify segments of your customers where a recurring revenue stream might make sense. I mean, I'll give you an example outside of construction, but I think it serves to just demonstrate the point. It was in the automatic customer, if you read it, is the story of H. Bloom, 
right? We're there in the business of selling flowers. Flowers are like, you think construction's tough. I mean, try selling flowers. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, the inventory starts to die as soon as the farmer cuts it. The typical flower store throws out half of its inventory every single month because it's dead on the vine. Crazy. 30% of all flowers bought Mother's Day and Valentine's Day. So look, you've got huge seasonality problems. And then how do you get people to buy flowers? Well, you have to buy some really expensive real estate or, or rent some real estate. You know, it's brutal. So these two guys come along, San Panda, Brian Burkhardt, and they said, we're going to sell flowers on subscription. But instead of trying to create a subscription for anybody who buys flowers, you know, people who buy weddings, and funerals, and graduations, they said, okay, what are all the reasons people buy flowers? Most of them are for events like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, and weddings and stuff. Then they discovered there's this kind of tiny little segment of the flower buying universe that buys flowers for an entirely different reason. And those are hotels. And if you think about it, hotels will buy fresh cut flowers for the reception table because they want to look prestigious. Or they want to justify the $300, $400 a night they're charging you. So they have nice flowers. Panda and Burkhart started this company called H. Bloom. And instead of selling flowers to retail in a retail environment, they sell flowers on subscription. The average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is more than $4,500. Compare that to the average transaction. We spend, you know, forget our wife or husband's wedding or wedding anniversary. It's like 50 bucks, right? It's a much, much more valuable company to acquire because H. Bloom has recurring revenue. And so I think, again, the first step is not to try to figure out, okay, I do kitchens and bathrooms and decks and I, like, I got to come up with something that everybody's going to want to is to think about what are the reasons people buy, segment, just like H. Bloom, and try to find a slice or a sliver of the market for whom buying from you is a, has a, they have a recurring need to buy from you. And that's, I think, the raw material for, for designing a subscription offering. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example because you, it's, it's almost what you would think of near last, you know, when you think of flower right. buying, you know? Okay. I'll come up with my subscription offering and then I'll go figure out who's going to want to buy it. Yep. You want to do the exact opposite, right? You want to figure out why people buy what you sell and then try to figure out, okay, among all those different people, is there one who needs it on a recurring basis? Like, like subs, like if you, if you offer, you know, glass installation as an example, well, you're probably a sub to a GC and your customer is probably not the homeowner. That's probably the general contractor, right? So you can start to think about, okay, does that GC hire me on a regular cadence? Okay. Yes. Great. What does he or she need from me? What would he or she value from me coming from me on a regular cadence? Would it be valuable, for example, to say like any customer for that GC that needs a repair job on their glass, I will do it. And all the GC needs to do is pay me a prayer. Like, again, I'm going out of my, out over my skis here because I don't know, I don't know the business as well as you do, but I think really segmenting your customers and figuring out what this, the recurring model might look like, I think is the first step. Yeah, yeah. I think that's good advice. And even to your point too, with the flower example, like look at your customers, even the ones that you maybe do one or two of those jobs a year for, even if the bulk of what you do, because that may be the one that's the good fit for the recurring. You, you just don't know until you kind of dive in. Yeah, taking this in just a little bit different direction, you know, obviously we do marketing for these types of businesses. We're an agency and, and I feel like one of the biggest challenges this industry faces is kind of that feast or famine. Like you're doing 2 million, then you drop to a million, then you, you know, ramp back up, but you're kind of all over the board and, and pretty much at the whim of just 
what does the market look like? You know, so right now everyone's busy. Like you could be new in business and you'd probably have a full plate right now. I think like having that marketing and sales engine adds that repeatability. But I'd love to hear your take on that and and maybe even just in comparison to um, some of these other things that add value. Like if you're if you've got one of these project-based businesses, if you haven't productized it, you don't have a recurring, but at least you have like a marketing engine that produces a certain number of you know, leads that you can count on, does that help in any way? Or is it just like, no, this is just a slightly better, you know, fancy job that you have? (laughs) Yeah. Look, we call it the rainmaker's dilemma. And here's the thing. I think most contractors are their company's greatest asset in the early years, right? So they're the ones who understand how to get the jobs done. They win the clients, the customers love them. They, they're they the glue that makes it all work. And that gets the business up to 700,000, a million three, a million four, a million eight, whatever. Something in that space where they eventually reach a plateau. And this is what we refer to as the rainmaker's dilemma, which is that if you're the rainmaker, the chief salesperson for your company, you will run out of hours in the day. And it is feast and famine. As soon as you start focusing on a job rather than filling the funnel, you start to move, lose traction, right? So it's the rainmaker's dilemma. And, and here's what I would say. The secret out of the rainmaker's dilemma is 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 most people who have those skills they have the right skills, they just need to transfer them to the right activity. So instead of doing the selling yourself or doing the marketing yourself, you want to build marketing funnels that take what you know about what customers want and the reasons they hire you over somebody else and build out a white paper or build out a marketing funnel or build out a lead flow or a lead engine or some sort of lead magnet that basically you know what customers want. You've looked in the whites of their eyes. You understand when they're going to be pissed off and when they're going to be delighted and when they're going to refer you. Like You know that because you've been doing it for 15, 20 years. You need to codify that. Instead of doing the selling yourself, build the marketing funnel, maybe hire you guys, but build the marketing funnel that basically takes what you you know inherently from serving so many customers and codifying it. Institutionalizing, those are fancy ways for making it like not dependent on you to deliver. And that's through marketing funnels and, and, and investing in. And one of the biggest mistakes I think most of us make as entrepreneurs is, is we underinvestment in our greatest strength, right? So for most entrepreneurs, they're good influencers. They're, they're good customer guys or gals, right? They can make a sale. And so they're like, I don't need to hire salespeople because I can do that, right? So, but I, I really want somebody, you know, to do drywalling because I hate that job. I really need someone to do the books because I hate doing the books and sending the invoices. And so I need to hire that person. But no, no, don't worry about the selling. I'll do that because I, you know, I'm, that's the last person I need to hire because I'm good with clients. All good. If you're happy with a business that generates 700 grand a year in revenue and maybe puts a hundred grand on the bottom line, you don't need to hire anybody. (laughs) You've got a job and that's great. But if you want to build a company and get past the rainmaker's dilemma, Investing in your greatest strength, in other words, hiring salespeople, building out marketing funnels, is the secret to getting from 700 grand or a million two or a million four to five, 10, 20 million. I did, I did a podcast recently, I built this all radio with a guy named Mike Aguilaro. Do you know Mike? I don't know. Built a company called Gold Medal Service out in New Jersey. And great story. He, 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 for the first 10 years of his business, he generates $700,000 in revenue a year. That's He kind of reaches that and then plateaus for all the same reasons we've talked about. He had a partner in the business. His partner threatens to leave. He walks in one day and says, Mike, 
I'm out. Like I didn't get into business for this to to kind of sit on this treadmill or whatever. And Mike says, hold on a second, don't, don't go. And they go on a retreat and they realize this rainmaker's dilemma thing. They didn't call it that, but they realized they'd been way under investing in marketing. And they made the huge commitment right there to invest in marketing, to make not make their greatest strength effectively their greatest weakness. One of the things they did, goofy little thing, Mike's wife went and did a bunch of research into colors and they discovered that the human eye is attracted to yellow and black. For some reason, maybe hereditary, maybe evolution, that you know, the, the wasp or the bee was yellow and black. No, no. But the human eye is is gravitates to yellow and black. So he painted all of his trucks yellow and black. Eventually, he scaled the business to 84 trucks, $34 million in revenue before he sold the company. Wow. For the first 10 years <laughs> of his business, he never clipped 700 grand in revenue. It's, it was an amazing story, but it just goes to show you, I think our greatest weakness, or excuse me, our greatest strength is often we reach a point where it becomes our biggest thing holding us back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I'll have to go listen to that one. Yeah. yeah I mean, just, Google built us a radio gold medal service. And you'll, you'll find it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. Well, and John, we're kind of winding down here. We've got one last segment of the show that I'll get to in a second, but before I do that, what's the best way people can get connected with you or learn more about what you're up to and how you help companies, you know, add more value? We actually put together a, a landing page for your listeners. So if you go to builttocell.com slash builder, builttocell.com slash builder, we put together eight videos there, which, which correspond with the eight drivers of, of company value. There's a, a subscription model checklist where you can look at the nine subscription models and pick one that might apply to your business. And there's also a, a workbook that you can use called the Art of Selling Your Business Workbook, which corresponds with the book I wrote on the same topic. So all that's free. So just go to builttosell.com slash builder. Cool. Yeah. And uh, for you guys listening, as you know, we'll drop the link in the show notes for you. Make it super easy. All right, John, last segment of the show, we call it the fast five. So I'll hit you with five rapid fire questions and, uh, and then we'll wind it up here. First question, favorite business book and why? And we'll exclude the ones that you've written. Small Giants, Bo Burlingham. Just a great book about uh, you know building a, a business with quality and care as opposed to chasing revenue. I like it. All right. Who is the most inspirational person in your life? I could say something cheesy like my kids or my, my wife, but I'm going to go with something a little less cheesy. I'm a big Elon Musk fan. I know he's controversial, but I also think if you think about his resume and you put it up against just about any other entrepreneur on the face of the earth, I mean, he has done more from PayPal to SpaceX to obviously Tesla. And I mean, the boring company, it's just it's mind-blowing what he's created. So I'll, I'll, I think he's pretty inspiring. That's a good one. Yeah. Big thinker. You know, it just really helps you expand your mind, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. All right. If you could have one superpower, what would that be? Oh, that is a good question. You remember, what's that movie with Mel Gibson where he can, he knows what people think? Oh, yeah. Oh, ability God, to mean, read minds. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be great if you like be in an elevator with someone and you'd be able to like actually read, know what they're thinking? <laughs> I think that'd be cool. That'd be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Could get you in trouble all over. Yeah, I know. That one definitely is a double-edged sword, I think. Yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, John, describe yourself in three words. Oh, I don't know. At this moment, hungry, thirsty, and uh, a little grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like the honesty. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the end of the day, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, final question is, if you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice, what would that be? 
think about your company as, you know, here's what I'd say. Most of the people listening to this are going to be parents. A lot of them are going to be parents. Not all, but many of them are going to be parents. And you think about what you do as a parent. Some people want the kid to play college football for Alabama. Other people want their kid to go to Harvard. Most of us, though, have much more modest expectations for our kids. Right? Like we would like them to become fully functioning adults, able to like you know make their <laughs> breakfast in the morning and go about their business and be happy, productive citizens. Like that's kind of the job description of a parent for many of us, right? And and I think if you instead of chasing the next job or the next client, you take the same attitude towards building your company. Instead of thinking of yourself as the CEO of your company, think of yourself as the parent of your company. And, and, and what you've got to do is get that company to a point where it can live without you. It can kind of go off in the world without you doing everything. And maybe it feels like it's in diapers right now and you have to do everything, literally. Maybe it feels like a precocious teenager and you kind of have to jump in at times and kind of redirect it. Or maybe it does feel like it exists without you. Whatever kind of end of the continuum you're on, I think just thinking of your role as as a parent for your business as opposed to its CEO, I think really changes the way you make decisions. So I thought you said this was the fast five. That was like the slow five. But that's, <laughs> that's what I would right. leave your listeners with. No, I love that analogy. Yeah, that as you were saying, I'm going, yeah, that makes, I can kind of peg where, where I'm at in that journey with that analogy. So, well, John, thank you so much for carving out the time. I really enjoyed this. You know, like I said before, I've read read a couple of the books. I need to pick up your latest one, but they've they've definitely had a positive impact on our business. So hopefully this conversation will for our listeners. Cool, man. It's good to be with you, Spencer. All right. Thanks, John. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John. In terms of some takeaways, as we always do, let's pull a couple of them out. The first one I think is going back to kind of earlier in the conversation, talked about building your business to sell and kind of adding that value into the business and thinking about what makes your business valuable and kind of that repeatable aspect. You know, how can you focus in on something super uh, targeted. So maybe it's only bass, maybe it's only hall bass, maybe it's only master bass, maybe it's just kitchens or additions or decks, and maybe even a specific type of deck. You know, the more narrow you can go, the better. And I'd encourage you to think about that. And then how does that add that repeatability to your business in your marketing, in your sales, in your training, in the way you deliver the service? It's done a lot for us in thinking about how do we narrow our audience? How do we get better at just delivering something very specific? So I think that was one big takeaway for me. And the second one was how do you, you know, how do you turn your service into a product? And John talked about that. You know, we're we like buying products, and you can turn a service into a product by kind of documenting the steps and maybe even trademarking the steps. So if you deliver the best XYZ, you know, deck. Well, you do that by following a specific process. It might be seven steps, 10 steps, whatever it is. But if you educate your customer on that, you market that and you sell that, then they can buy the deck builder system or whatever uh, fully installed for a set price. Typically, when you do that, you can charge a premium on that. And like John talked about, you can get better terms, you can get paid up front. All these nice positive benefits come from that. So Hopefully those those are two big action steps because those are some meaty um, topics to dive in and try to figure out. But hopefully those set you on a really positive path moving forward in terms of trying to add more value into your business. So 
As always, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, share it with a colleague. If you're in a peer group, send it out to them. I think this is this can be a very uh, pivotal point in your business career. And if you take some of these ideas and run with them, and if you enjoyed this conversation, go ahead and leave us a review here at Builder Funnel. We really appreciate it. We love connecting with you listeners, and we're going to continue to put out content like this in hopes that it will take your business to the next level, whatever that looks like for you. All right, guys, we'll see you next week here on Builder Funnel Radio. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And as a quick reminder, text RADIO to 33777 for some free goodies as a thank you for listening to the show. And if you got some value from today's episode, I just ask that you leave us a quick review on iTunes. It really helps us spread the word and grow this awesome community of people who are working to improve their lives and their businesses. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Builder Funnel Radio.